3: This is The California Report magazine. Here on our show, we've brought you stories about what conditions can be like for some immigrants inside ICE detention.
4: A lot of mold in there,
3: you know, a lot of mold. Sometimes it'll be hot, sometimes it'll be freezing. The water either was super hot or super cold. Some detainees have complained it's hard to get legal representation or that they've experienced sexual harassment from guards or others held in the detention centers. I don't want to be here anymore.
4: I know if I complain, they won't listen to me. People
3: in ICE detention centers can get jobs in those facilities, doing things like scrubbing toilets, cleaning showers, sweeping dorms, folding laundry, even working as barbers. What a lot of folks may not realize is that many of those jobs only pay $1 a day.
1: I stand up against unfair treatment. It's like that slavery rate of $1 a day.
3: Well, dozens of immigrant detainees locked up in a facility in Bakersfield have gone on a labor strike. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on our show, we're going to hear from some of them who say they deserve better wages for the work they do inside the detention center. One of my colleagues has been doing some deep reporting on this issue. She's been talking to immigrants from inside detention, even from inside solitary confinement. Farida Javala romero is KQED's labor correspondent, and she's been following complaints from detainees who say they've been retaliated against for going on strike. Farida is going to walk us through how those complaints eventually led members of Congress to call for an investigation. Hey there, Farida. Hi, Sasha. So tell us about these work programs for people being held in immigration detention. How is it that they're only getting paid a dollar a
0: day? Well, this is supposed to be a voluntary work program. That's what Immigration and Customs Enforcement calls it. And some detainees say they started working in the program to be able to afford commissary items like dental floss and tortillas um, or to be able to afford phone calls with relatives because they're charged for them. The agency has guidelines that spell out, you know, who is allowed to be part of this program, uh, sort of the rules for it. And in there, it says detainees should be paid at least a dollar a day. So that program with that kind of pay is operating with the blessing of ICE and Congress, which could increase the wages, but hasn't done so for decades. Now, ICE contracts with for-profit companies to hold most of the immigrants detained around the country, and a company called the GEO Group operates the two detention centers where this uh, labor strike is happening, the Mesa Verde Ice Processing Center in Bakersfield, and another one nearby called Golden State Annex. And the company's basically following that $1 a day pay rate. Okay, but I got to ask you,
3: we know people who are incarcerated also work for very
0: little money. How is this different? This is a different setting than people held in prison because immigrant detainees are not being held to serve a criminal sentence. ICE is holding them to make sure they appear in immigration uh, proceedings in court. So immigration detention is legally classified as civil, not criminal, and it's not supposed to be punitive.
3: You've been talking with a number of the strikers held in immigration detention, including a guy named Pedro Figueroa, who worked cleaning bathrooms and and dorms in the ICE detention center. Tell us about him.
0: Pedro Figueroa was brought as a baby to the U.S. from Mexico. Uh, He grew up in Orange County and he spent most of his life in California. He has four kids and he never thought he'd end up in immigration detention, but ICE arrested him when he got out of state prison. He served uh, 12 years for voluntary manslaughter. And after doing his time, he thought he was finally going home, but then you know, ICE um, took him into custody. He didn't have a lawful immigration status. This has happened to other immigrants who have criminal records as well. And, you know, something interesting about Pedro is he became a firefighter while he was in prison. And to get that chance to be an inmate firefighter, you need really good behavior and to be considered the lowest security risk uh, by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And so Pedro ended up fighting some of the biggest wildfires we've seen with CAL FIRE for a couple of years. And it's something he's really proud of.
1: Sometimes we'll be driving back to the camp and then uh, there'll be a whole bunch of kids like on on some of the streets holding up signs like, oh, thank you, firefighters, for saving my home. So just to, you know, picture them like, wow, we just saved their house and their parents, you know, their cars, their homes. That's a very good feeling. um, It's honestly priceless.
0: And now he's been locked up for a year at the Mesa Verde Ice Processing Center while he fights deportation, and, you know, the fact that he's missed even more time with his kids makes him really sad, and he's frustrated about what he says is an unwillingness by staff at the facility to improve their treatment of of people held there.
1: I mean, I'm doing as best as as I can be, you know, and, you know, in a a place like this, it's really our responsibility to, like, pick ourselves up, you know, because just waking up right here, you know, it's um, it's, it's enough to send someone into, like, the space of, like, depression, you know?
3: Yeah, and probably adding to that is the fact that he's, you know, doing some, some work, like cleaning bathrooms. Uh, that's pretty nasty work for low wages, just a dollar a day. What are the strikers asking for?
0: Well, yeah, that's one of the central demands of the strike is to get California's um, minimum wage of $15 an hour. They're also protesting what they call mistreatment from guards at the facility and substandard food. Um, They also say they're uh, living and working in uh, toxic conditions, uh, including patches of black mold in the showers, which, by the way, California regulators are investigating at one of these detention centers. Another person I talked to who's also detained at Mesa Verde is Serafina Andrade. He's originally from Mexico. He grew up in East Palo Alto, and he also uh, worked cleaning dorms and bathrooms at the detention center.
1: And to only get paid a dollar for it, um, that was pretty outrageous. And, you know, that's also too when, you know, everyone was like, yeah, we should deserve to get paid more for our labor instead of being exploited and, you know, the profits going to, to the geo group.
0: Sasha, something we should mention is the GEO Group, which operates that detention center, is one of the largest private prison companies in the U.S. Their revenues so far this year are $1.7 billion. That's according to the company's latest financial results. These detainees,
3: though, want to be paid more, so they're going on strike. How long have they
0: been striking? Some detainees have been on strike since April at Mesa Verde and since June at Golden State Annex. Immigrant advocates who are tracking this say it's about 95 people total at both detention centers who are now on strike. Pedro and about 16 other people in his dorm at Mesa Verde joined the strike in late June, and they signed a letter telling guards that they weren't going to work anymore. Uh, but just two days later, Pedro was sent to a restricted housing unit. Those are small cells where people are locked up by themselves most of the day. Pedro said he was held in one of these cells that was about 6 feet by 12 feet, uh, with no windows to the outside uh, for 22 hours a day or, or longer.
3: So is Pedro saying that he was put in this kind of solitary confinement as a kind of retaliation for joining the strike?
0: Yes. Pedro and other detainees say this was retaliation because they were speaking up and decided to participate in a peaceful labor strike. I reviewed records from GEO showing that Pedro was charged with what they call inciting or engaging in a demonstration, and there was another charge disrupting the security of the detention center, which are considered to be major offenses under ICE guidelines. I spoke with Pedro while he was held in segregation.
1: This is what they're doing to retaliate against people that speak up, you know? This is what they're doing to intimidate us, which I am intimidated. I should not be here. Um, I've been away from my family for so many years, and it's like, nowadays, I'm deprived of my liberty, and then on top of that, I'm being confined into solitary confinement for for doing nothing wrong. how, How does that add up?
0: Immigrant detainees locked up in these cells do get access to an electronic tablet that they're charged a fee to use, and and they can also use a phone that guards push through a latch in the metal door of the cell. That's how I was able to talk to Pedro. And Sasha, the detainees that are striking say, this is one of the few Things They can do to try to make their voices heard. Detainees can file formal grievances with staffers at the facility and ICE about problems they see, but they say those grievances frequently go nowhere. So how long was Pedro kept in this solitary confinement? About a week, um, actually, he was released back into the dorm a few hours after we at KQED published a story about his segregation in July. But another man who signed that letter supporting the strike with Pedro was held in in segregation or solitary confinement for more than forty days. His name is Mohammed Musa. He's from Egypt.
1: They want to break me. They want me to stop advocating. They want me to stop standing up for my rights, for our rights. And all the detainees right here are scared of retaliation. I'm already in hell. You know, I'm already in detention. Detention is hell.
0: The documents I saw from the detention center also said Mohammed was found guilty of the same charges as Pedro. In total, four detainees alleged they were placed in solitary confinement for joining the labor strike at Mesa Verde.
3: That you've also reported on the fact that some of these detainees, with help from immigrant advocates, filed a lawsuit. They're suing this private company, GEO.
0: Yeah, Pedro Figueroa is one of the plaintiffs, and the lawsuit charges GEO maximized its profits by coercing detainees to work for $1 a day in tasks that are needed to run Mesa Verde and Golden State Annex. And they're asking for the company to pay back wages and other damages, not just for you know, for themselves, for the plaintiffs, but for all detained workers. I talked with Gay Grunfeld. She's an attorney based in San Francisco who's representing Pedro and the other eight plaintiffs. These workers are forced to do an eight-hour
3: shift for $1 a day. So that's a blatant violation of California minimum wage laws and other labor protections.
0: And there's a court hearing set in this case for next month, and you know, California is not the only place where there's a court battle over whether detainees should be paid minimum wage by a federal contractor like GEO. In Washington state last year, a federal judge ordered GEO to pay $23 million for failing to pay that state's minimum wage to detainees at a facility in Tacoma. And after that, instead of agreeing to pay minimum wage moving forward, GEO just shut down that work program, and they're asking the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to review that judge's ruling and to reverse it. And now we're waiting on a decision on that case. So there is a precedent, at least in Washington state, for a judge
3: asking Gio to pay detainees minimum wage uh, in another state. What have GEO and ICE told you about these allegations of wage theft and about the allegations of retaliation because of the detainees striking?
0: Yeah, so I asked GEO and ICE repeatedly for interviews, but they declined. Um, In statements, a GEO spokesman has um, denied the whole time that there's a labor strike at Mesa Verde and Golden State. They say that's because the program is voluntary and that they're not forcing anyone to work. Uh, The company strongly rejects the allegations of any kind of retaliation, and they say they're committed to ensuring a safe and humane environment in all of their facilities, and that they're following all the federal rules. ICE declined to comment on the lawsuit, but they did say that the agency fully respects the rights of all people to voice their opinion uh, without interference, including through peaceful assembly and protest. And meanwhile,
3: some members of Congress are taking this up. They're asking the Secretary of Homeland Security to investigate those claims of retaliation against detainees. And in fact, they've pointed to your reporting.
0: Yes. So there's um, more than a dozen members of Congress from California, all Democrats, led by Representative So Lofgren from uh, San Jose. And in their letter, they pointed to our reporting and they're calling for top officials at the Department of Homeland Security, which oversees ICE and at ICE, to investigate these, you know, complaints of retaliation and abuse made by detainees. Here's Congresswoman so Lofgren, who chairs the House Immigration Subcommittee.
5: We want a complete investigation. And if they um, determine that these allegations are correct, We believe that the contract uh, for these facilities should be terminated.
3: So has anything come of that? Have they
0: started to investigate? Congresswoman Lofgren and U.S. Senator Alex Padilla, who also signed this letter requesting for an investigation, both of their offices said they have not received a response yet from these agencies Meanwhile, the detainees I've spoken with say the conditions are still really bad inside, that the bathrooms are really dirty, that guards come in and clean, but only superficially. And they say staffers at the detention center are still retaliating against them, but in more indirect ways, like cutting down their yard time or restricting their movements more, which, by the way, the company GEO fully denies. Uh, But Pedro also told me that there's now excessive pat-downs that are invasive every time they leave their dorm.
1: It's a constant uh, invasion of our privacy, you know. We're not prisoners, you know, so we should not be treated as prisoners.
0: He feels so uncomfortable with these pat-downs that he said he'll skip meals at the dining hall just to not deal with being frisked. So Farida,
3: what's next for Pedro Figueroa? Just to remind people, he's the firefighter who was born in Mexico, but was brought to the U.S. as a baby. Sounds like he's out of solitary confinement, but still in detention for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, he doesn't know how long he'll be detained at Mesa Verde. His attorney has requested ICE let him be with his family while he waits for a final decision on his immigration case, but the agency has refused. So right now he feels really stuck.
1: Dealing with just the basic things that we don't have right here, it it aggravates that. So it makes it extremely hard to get up and and pick yourself up and feel strong and feel positive. It makes it extremely hard, you know, that you want to run away from this place and you can't.
0: One of the things Pedro remembers is that dignity he felt and that self-worth when he was fighting wildfires and helping to save people's homes. And that's something he says he wants to do. He wants to work for Cal Fire when he gets out. But for now, he says the only thing he can really keep doing is being part of this labor strike and try to get better conditions for other detained people and himself and for detained workers to earn more than $1 a day. Farida, thank you so much for your reporting on this story and for keeping on it. Thank you, Sasha.
3: Farida Jabala-Romero covers labor for KQBD, where we produce the California Report. She's been covering the labor strike inside ICE detention centers near Bakersfield. California has always been a place people come to to seek refuge, not just from other countries, People move here from other states looking to live more freely as their authentic selves. Sometimes people move so they can make their own choices about medical care. Voters just enshrined access to abortion in our state's constitution. And a new law declares California a safe state for families who want to come here to get hormones or puberty blockers for their transgender kids. The law protects parents who have non-binary or trans kids and want gender-affirming care for them. This year, 21 states have tried to restrict or ban medical care for trans kids. Some of those efforts penalize parents for affirming their kids' gender identity. Others criminalize doctors who treat gender dysphoria. KQED's health correspondent, Leslie McClure brings us the story now of one family who just upended their life and moved to California to protect their child.
2: After decades of building a life in Texas, a mother suddenly worried she might be investigated for child abuse. We were stunned that it was no longer safe for us to be there. She requested we not use her name because earlier this year, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered Family Protective Services to investigate parents with transgender kids. The mother started hearing stories about children who were pulled
5: out of classrooms and interrogated. With their parents not being there, and these are children that have only socially transitioned. All they asked for was to be called a different pronoun. That's terrifying.
2: Her own 12-year-old daughter socially transitioned three years ago. As a girl. The child wanted her mom and dad to use feminine pronouns.
5: You know, it took my brain some gymnastics to <laughs> wrap my mind around what that meant for us. And, and to be frank, I love my child and I know my child. And they are completely beautiful and bright But I was concerned what that would mean in society for them. And her fears were warranted, given the fact that Texas officials started questioning families. And so we sat down and talked to our kid. We gave her a little card to go to school with that listed her rights and told her what to do if somebody came to investigate us. The mother began consulting
2: lawyers to find out, okay, what are the options? What are the protections? And the lawyers began talking about the potential risks at play.
5: And when it comes to the safety of my child, that
2: risk is none. After many sleepless nights, the family didn't see any other option but to leave Texas.
5: So that's what we did. We pulled it together. And within six months, we've sold our house. And <laughs> we're staying with family. And um, we had to get you know our kiddo into a new school in California, which was also crazy. So much minutia. They're not sure how long
2: they'll be staying with relatives as they rebuild their lives.
5: But we know in our hearts that it was the right decision because our child is safe and that's the most important thing.
2: They arrived just as a new law passed that ensures families can access hormones or puberty blockers in California. And it shields families from investigations in other states. State Senator Scott Weiner authored the law.
1: We are going to provide them with refuge, and we're not going to send them back, and we're not going to honor subpoenas, and our law enforcement is not going to enforce uh, the laws of Texas and Alabama criminalizing these families. Two controversial bills are now law in Alabama. Governor Ivey signing a law banning medication for transgender youth and doctors who break it face criminal penalties.
2: In fact, in nearly half the country, leaders are pushing laws that would restrict medical care for transgender youth. Leaders like Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida.
1: You know, you don't disfigure 10-, 12-, 13-year-old kids based on gender dysphoria. I think these doctors need to get sued for what's happening, I'm sorry.
2: Many of these efforts are tied up in court. Nevertheless, families are panicking because kids who are already on hormones or puberty blockers may lose access to their medication. That's exactly what Greg Burt hopes unfolds.
1: We want these treatments to not be happening on minors because they're permanent.
2: He's with California Family Council, a conservative Christian organization. Burt worries kids will regret transitioning.
1: We do not assume that your body is the problem. We think it's much more logical to encourage young people to try and get their minds to match their bodies.
2: Yet the global standard of care for kids who are really distressed and diagnosed with gender dysphoria does include medical interventions. But it's not just the content of the new California law that Burt opposes. He also argues that it violates the Constitution.
1: There's going to be a constitutional crisis.
2: (laughs) He says states usually uphold each other's civil judgments. But this is the second time this year that California is taking a different tack. First, the state created a sanctuary for people seeking an abortion. And now the state is a safe haven for transgender kids. So there could be litigation, both with respect to abortion and with respect to gender-affirming care. Jessica Levinson is a professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles.
4: But I think the weight of the law indicates that states are separate sovereigns
2: if and until there is a national standard that indicates... Nobody can obtain gender-affirming care, or nobody can obtain an abortion. The law allows for that patchwork. In other words, she argues that a patchwork of conflicting state laws on gender-affirming care is within the bounds of the Constitution until there's a federal law. Ever since the California law passed, Kathy Mollig has been busier than ever. She is the executive director of Trans Family Support Services in San Diego. We do have families that have already
3: relocated to California from
2: other states. She expects that trend to continue.
3: The politicians should not be making medical decisions for anybody, nor should they be making parental decisions for anybody.
2: A survey from the Trevor Project, a suicide prevention organization, found that 45% of transgender youth have considered killing themselves in the last year. About a decade ago, Molig helped her 11-year-old access puberty blockers.
3: My son would not still be alive if we waited to 18. He already was in so much distress and so completely miserable, his body was becoming something that he knew he was not. Today, she says her son
2: is thriving in college, studying theology. Yet there's little to no data on whether youth who transition regret that decision later. For the Molig family, their only regret is waiting as long as they did. For The California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg.
3: Coming up next week on The California Report magazine, we've got a family story for you for Thanksgiving weekend. We're reprising one of our favorite episodes from this year. It's a documentary about what happens when you don't learn your heritage language, the language your parents or your grandparents speak. Reporter Izzy Bloom gets asked all the time why she doesn't speak her heritage language,
4: Japanese. And the answer is complicated. When my older brother Max was born in 1994, my mom spoke to him exclusively in Japanese. She really loved holding Max and singing Japanese lullabies to him. I carrying around and uh, walking around the house and very calm,
3: and I singing uh, singing a you know, song and, I,
4: and I, he, he sleeps. My mom talked to Max in Japanese while my dad spoke to him in English. But when he was three, Max was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder called Prader-Willi syndrome, which can cause insatiable hunger, physical challenges, and delayed speech. What was it like to find out about Max when you got the diagnosis? Wow, um... The feeling, I still don't forget it. The kind of the feeling you never felt before. After he was diagnosed, Max's pediatrician told our parents that if they wanted Max to learn English, it would have to be English only. And so when I was born five years after Max, it was just too complicated for my mom to only speak to one child in Japanese. So years later, I went on a quest to find out if the recommendations my parents got from Max's doctors were based in science. Is it detrimental to raise a kid like Max in a bilingual household?
3: Tune in next week to hear Izzy's answer to that question and what she discovers about her family along the way. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director, and Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. Our intern is Jessica Carisa. Special thanks this week to Kevin Stark, and I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report Magazine. Your state,
0: your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast
3: from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's hey, podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of The Bay and beyond with reliable, human centered journalism.